Um, if you've got your uh, phones or uh, whatever you use for a Bible these days, if you want to open them up to Galatians chapter 4, if you are uh, visiting with us this morning, we are working our way through the book of Galatians chapter by chapter. We're up to uh, chapter 4. Let me summarize what we have um, learned so far. Uh, this is the same, you know how Eugene Peterson wrote a, a version of the Bible? This is my version. Okay, here we go. Galatians 1. Oi, Galatians, it's freaking grace through faith in Jesus. This message came straight from God to me, says Paul. Galatians 2. Get your, heart, get your head and hearts around this. It's grace, through, it's grace through faith in Jesus. And even though my mate Peter felt some peer pressure, they all agreed that this is actually what the gospel is in its entirety. Galatians 3. You foolish, moronic, idiotic Galatians. You're not saved by the law by being a good person, but you're saved through grace, through faith in Jesus. And this grace was at the heart of God from, uh, for His people from the beginning of time. It predates the law of Moses. From the covenant of Abraham, God has done all the work for us, right? There's Galatians 1, 2, and 3. Who's like, oh man, I wish I just flagged the last three Sundays and whatever. There's a lot more going on in those chapters here. Now, you've got to remember as we work through the book of Galatians that uh, this letter would have been read in its entirety when the church gathered. The reason we have to do it uh, book by book is because we are living 2,000 years later. So we've got to peel back some of the cultural and contextual uh, dirt that's there and polish it away so we can see the beauty of what's going on. Uh, and on one level, there's this kind of battle that Paul's raging with where it's like he's trying to just like uh, convince uh, uh, the church in Galatia, but also this whole thing going on around like, how are you saved? And so you've got all these people saying, oh, you've actually got to fulfill the law of Moses. You've got to tick all the, all the religious kind of rules in the Old Testament. Uh, and Paul's like, no, Jesus has taken care of it all. It's again, it's, it's, it's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we don't have, uh, that battle's been won. Paul won the battle, hallelujah. So we don't have that debate in church anymore around you know, do I have to, you know, do Sabbath rest or do I have, boys, do I have to be circumcised to be, you know, accepted by God? Hallelujah, you don't. Uh, you know, we've, we've worked all that out. Thank you. But here's the thing, the reason that we're working through the book of Galatians and why uh, it's so powerful today is that this, there's still a battle in all of our minds as to whether we live under the law or whether we live under the grace. Like that is a battle that is raging inside every single person. And I've said it before, I'm going to keep saying it. The, often the mentality is that we have to li- get to a certain level of goodness and then we can come to church and God will accept us. That's seriously most folks thinking. I've been really naughty and so instead of running to the God of grace, I'm going to try and sort myself out for a couple of weeks, have a good, you know, be sober for a couple of weeks or not look at porn for a couple of weeks or not smoke cigarettes for a couple of weeks or not eat an extra cheeseburger or whatever it may be for you. And then once I've sorted myself out, then I will go to church and I will, or I'll go hang out with God. And it's like, you know what? That's the law saying that you've got, to, you've, got to be, you've got to be good. And the cross says, no, 100% grace, 100%. You don't have to, all you have to do is run to the one who can make you clean. Let your sin propel you towards God, not away from him. I've said that a million times, right? So this is the battle that's going on. It's interesting in Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 15, 
And Paul says this, he says, uh, it sh- the, uh, the, in the Gentiles, it shows that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. So there's this sense where in every person there's this conscience that we have, and over time, if we choose to violate that conscience, that conscience gets um, seared and numbed, and we don't feel it as, as strongly anymore. But that's a gift from God, because as Paul says, the law's actually written on our hearts. And at times, that's a good thing, because it can defend us and protect us and be like, hey, not a good idea to do that. But then at other times, it, uh, it can be horrible, because it can accuse us. You're not good enough. And, uh, and we took communion this morning because we believe by faith that we are because of what Jesus has done, and we receive and we accept that gift. Um, one of uh, my friends in this church, um, I've been having some lovely yarns with him, and he's been saying like that he's been so moved as we've kind of worked our way through this book of Galatians, that, um, and he's been speaking this truth over himself throughout the week, when these feelings of accusation and shame that he's normalised in his life can uh, rear their head really regularly. And he's just been saying, I have been justified with Jesus because of what Jesus has done on the cross. I am justified. I've been made right with God because of my sermon a couple of weeks ago, justified, sanctified, glorified, right? You have to listen to that one. I'm not going to summarize that old thing again. And I love hearing that. And, and, and there have been a lot of people saying, man, this has been so healing. Like we need to be reminded of how loved we are and that it's nothing but grace. And grace is the thing that heals us. Grace is the thing that propels us onwards to live these beautiful, righteous, holy lives that see us flourish and live our lives as a blessing. In Psalm 107 verse 20, it said, He sent forth his, his word and healed them. He rescued them from their traps. That's why getting into the book of Galatians and again, getting into the Bible in general is a great idea. It heals us as we come under the authority of the word of God. So chapter four, we've read every single verse from the last three chapters and we're gonna keep on reading every single verse until we get to the end of the book of Galatians. And over the course of six weeks, we would have read the book of Galatians out loud in our church. I love that. Now, uh, this uh, we're gonna work our way through, as I say, the text, this Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 4 flows from uh, the end of chapter 3. All the chapter breaks are not there in the original letter. Uh, They were put there a bit later. So it says this uh, in 3 verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That was what the stuff that Jim was talking about last time. And then verse 1 of chapter 4. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, uh, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time is set by his father. So you're going to be seeing as we work our way through chapter four once more that Paul's going to use all sorts of metaphors to try and drive the point home around how free we are in Christ. And as Jen said last week, uh, the law of Moses uh, both had a negative and a positive effect on Israel. Uh, A negative effect in the sense that they could not live up to it. And it's like, it just brings revelation around their need for a saviour, which came in Jesus. And the positive thing was that it's like a, a standard, like aim for this, shoot for this. Don't just settle for a life filled with all sorts of rubbish, shoot for this beautiful holy life. So they had this kind of positive and negative effect, just like a trustees would for these uh, back in the day for all of these ears. And so uh, Paul is telling us that the gospel is Jesus, 
uh, and he came to fulfill the purpose of the law. Jesus was the faithful Israelite, the one who without sin loved both God and neighbour. He died to take the curse and consequence of the failure and sin of everyone upon himself and bring redemption. And so through Jesus, the blessing of God can, can come to all of us. We're going to work our way through quickly some of this. Verse 3. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, listen, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now this is a huge moment in Paul's in this, in this letter of Galatians, that we might receive adoption to, to sonship. Jesus has redeemed us, and now we are in Christ and we are in God's family. And the Greek word for adoption to sonship is a legal term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. So this is a huge deal. Now, uh, I have had the privilege of being friends with a, a number of people that uh, have adopted children, and I've got mates of mine that were adopted. And there's something about uh, uh, that story of adoption that, that helps them in a very unique and special way understand the heart of God in the most incredible way. And one of, um, one of my friends in the States, he had some friends who adopted two beautiful kids uh, from an orphanage in Africa called Billy and Becky. And, uh, and uh, this guy, Brian, and his wife went over to Africa and went to this orphanage and, uh, and what they did when they got to the orphanage, they said, we want to begin just, uh, you know, um, helping these kids get used to living with us as parents. So what we're going to do is we're just going to have the rhythms of the orphanage and we'll just keep that for a little while so that they just feel like familiar, they've got a familiar routine going on. And so uh, Brian and, um, and his wife went there and they had these beautiful little uh, twins, Billy and Becky. And on the very first day that they were with Billy, uh, with Billy and Becky, um, they said, okay, let's, um, let's have the nap time, like we have nap time. And Becky fell asleep straight away, and, uh, and little Billy um, clearly wasn't sleeping. And so, um, and so Brian waits for a little while. And, um, and then, and again, remember, this is the first day that this kid is, um, is in, uh, living with these new parents. And he said to little Billy, hey, Billy, do you want to come? Because he's lying on the, uh, in a bed just over here. Hey, Billy, do you want to just come and jump in the bed with me and I'll give you a little cuddle and help you fall asleep? And, uh, and little, little Billy just jumps out of bed and trots. And this is the little picture that his wife took. Like that, he fell asleep. Like that, he fell asleep. And um, this is the most beautiful picture. This is exactly what Paul's trying to say here in terms of who you are in Christ. Like you can come home to a heavenly father and you can, and, and my friend wrote this, uh, we all rest more easily in the loving embrace of a father we barely know who seems to be accepting us and loving us in ways we can't quite comprehend. We feel the heartbeat, we feel the warmth, we feel the arms of acceptance on our backs and we can rest. This is what Paul's saying. Like, I know I read through all this stuff and ears and adoption and sin and circumcision and law and stuff, and it's like everyone's just like, here we go again. We have been adopted into God's family, and this is who we are now in Christ, is that we can rest. And Paul's literally like, you can pick. You can choose to be under some, some sterile law or you can choose to be adopted into the family of God and feel his embrace. 
Because I tell you what I'm picking <laughs> any day of the week. I'm picking the embrace of God. And then it goes on in verse 6. Because you are his sons. Now I'm going to stop there because already it's like the patriarchal cultures coming through. I mean, I hope, hopefully there's a... a um, I'm a feminist, so I'm like, you know, someone's a little, hey, you know, very nice, isn't it? You know, sons, sons, sons. Um, you know, you've been adopted as sons of God. And, uh, listen to this, I love this. Um, written by Caroline Curtis James. So given the fact that in the first century patriarchal culture, sons were prized above daughters, who didn't inherit, didn't show up in genealogies, and, and were married off to build another man's family, the fact that Paul is telling a mixed audience that they are all sons is not diminishing women in the least. To the contrary, Paul's, women's are, Paul's words are elevating them to the same high status in God's family as their brothers. Paul is telling women, Gentiles, and slaves that in God's families, you're all sons. How cool is that? So there's this kind of subversive thing happening there, which is really cool. Let's move on. If everyone else can chill out, if that's uh, not you. Because you are his sons, listen, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. It's just incredible. He sent the spirit of his son. As I didn't, uh, I didn't prime Ryan on this. This is God loves doing this. But that, that thing in Ephesians where he's saying like, he, Paul is praying that there'll be revelation. The spirit of revelation will come so that you will know God more. That's a, a, this, Paul's saying the same thing here. Like literally there's these moments. And I pray that if you haven't had this, you'll have it this morning. Even as some of you, it's already happening as you looked at that photo, where by the spirit of God, you're like, oh my gosh, that's me. Oh my gosh, that's me. I am a son of God and I've been adopted. And, and there's this cry within you that says Abba, which is this lovely word of intimacy when it comes to a father. Now, whenever you start going down this track, you've got to acknowledge that all of us had flawed fathers. And now that I'm a father, I can be like, oh dear, Lord, by your spirit, bring revelation to my boys that you are way better than me. Like me, me on my best day, and sometimes I have the occasional okay day as a dad, is nothing compared to what our heavenly father is like. And sometimes when we've had very bruising and wounding experience about what our earthly father is like, there's a healing work that needs to happen and does happen as God comes and says, I am your heavenly father. I am your heavenly father. And what you're experiencing of your earthly father is not what I am like. I am safe. I am faithful. I am strong. I'm there for you. And it's this lovely healing work. But again, it's a work of the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit. And I pray this morning that there'll be that, that, that sense of God bringing revelation by His Spirit that says, oh, that's what He's like. That's what He's like. Um, uh, and then it says, uh, let me actually unpack that word Abba Father as well because um, this guy, Dr. Timothy George, in his commentary on uh, in Galatians says this, however, we, we, we often over-sentimentalise this word when we refer it to uh, as mere baby talk and translate it into English as daddy. So some, and I've heard this sometimes, we've got no problem with this on one level, but it's not really what Paul's getting at when people, you know, sort of pray daddy, father, or whatever. Like that. Again, no problem with people want to relate to God like that, but... Um, but the word Abba, uh, he says, appears in certain legal texts in the Mishnah as a designation used by growing children, listen, in claiming the inheritance of their deceased father. 
As a word of address, Abba is not so much associated with infancy as it is with intimacy. It is a cry of the heart, not a word spoken calmly with personal detachment and reserve, but a word we call or cry out, krazo is the Greek there. We cry out, Abba, Father. So we don't want to over-sentimentalise it by saying this is kind of like baby talk, but it's a term of incredible intimacy. It's only used three times uh, in the New Testament. And that's often because that word is so beautiful and it's sort of like surely a holy God who's we're angels are gathering around him in worship right now and who created the universe like this seems insane that he would he would by spirit bring revelation so that you and me can cry out from deep within us you're Abba you're like a father that's what you're like and that's what he is like this is incredible revelation that can take place within there Uh, and you are no longer a slave but God's child and God has made you an heir um there's this lovely thing again that he's talked about the inheritance that we might receive an inheritance in him. Um, there's it's just like this unexpected gift. It's like oh, you get like you get it all. You get like you become part of God's family. And as he's trying to say in Ephesians, you've got access to heavenly riches. It's all yours. Um, this church uh, started because of an inheritance. Um, Grandma Hilda died uh, a few years ago, and uh, we, me and Jean got a little unexpected inheritance. How cool is that? And we uh, were like, okay, we're going to buy a caravan. That'll be so cool. And then God called us to Napier, and we said, goodbye, caravan. Hello, living by faith. <laughs> and because of that inheritance, we could, uh, we could uh, live by faith with some supporters and stuff and help establish this church. Uh, and so through an inheritance, uh, I just, it, it dawned on me as I was preparing this, wow, through an inheritance, this church was born. We would have very much struggled to do it without that inheritance. And God provided us beautifully a number of years later with the caravan because IID hadn't paid enough, uh, enough working for families. Thank you very much. I'll have some of that. And uh, for the first time, it's flowing this way. And, uh, and we were very thrilled and we felt like God, uh, God was so good, again, of a lovely father to provide uh, something that we gave up so that we could plant the church. And now we've got what Jen calls Elton. I don't like the name, but that's, uh, that's the name of our caravan. Um, can you see how rich this is? Can you see how beautiful this is? Like this, this language, like you are part of God's family and you're a son now and you get to be part of it and he's your father. Uh, and so we can choose to live under the law, under all these expectations around how we should be, or we can choose to be sons of God and just to receive that, um, that we can embrace the fact that we've been loved and chosen. And so then he goes on in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Uh, so uh, this, these... Um, in verse 8, there's this line there, and, and I've really struggled to understand, uh, sort of translate it, but this, and I've, he's mentioned it in verse 1 as well, I think. Uh, let me double check that. Um, these elemental forces that uh, have taken place uh, in verse uh, 3, sorry. Uh, these elemental forces, like, and so Paul's saying to the uh, guys in Galatia, you, like, not on, there's kind of two things happening here. Uh, before you encountered the grace of God and the gospel and I came, you were living under the kind of forces of the world and then I came and preached the gospel and you got free and now you're choosing to come back into another sort of form of slavery under the law again. So let me unpack this. 
uh, Paul's preaching to a bunch of, of uh, Gentiles, so people that didn't grow up in the Jewish faith. So what are the elemental forces that they were living under? Listen, they're exactly the same forces that are at work in the world today that want to enslave you. And what do I mean by that? Is that we can be enslaved to all sorts of things. As I said, when it comes to our parents, we can still be enslaved by our parents' expectations and we can be living to try and please them even if they've kicked the bucket. We can, be, uh, we can be living in slavery because we think, oh man, if I just get a certain amount of money, then I'll feel free, right? And we can, just, we can sacrifice marriages and families and times with kids and all sorts and our desire to get X amount of money. Or if we think, oh man, if I get to a position of power in my work where I've, been, been, uh, and I've gone up the chain enough and I've got some power, then, then I'll feel like I'm somebody and I'll feel free. And it's like constant sense of trying to get there and we never, ever get there, right? That constant sense of striving and it's slavery. And friends, how many people in our worlds, right, in the world that you go to, are just in slavery trying to get somewhere and they never quite reach it, right? And they keep paying this price that's just, and it's constant. So Paul's saying, you live there, in this, and all of us have to wrestle with this. This is why Galatians is super healing and super important. Uh, and then you can become a Christian, and then it's like you live under a different sort of slavery where you're like, oh, I've just got to get up to the standard. I've got to be good enough. I've got to, I've got to be sorted and all the rest of it. And it's like, it's a different form of slavery where we keep trying to please God when the first step Paul's trying to say is simply receive the grace and the goodness of God. Oh, man. Listen, uh, Bridgetown, I've been doing some reading obviously all of this, and Bridgetown wrote the small group thing, and I don't actually know who wrote it, but what they said was really huge. They said, it says, what we don't have, I think I've got this up here, what we don't have, is ever before us or tucked temporarily in the shadow of our subconsciousness. The hunger for more cripples, gratitude and drains restfulness. The hamster who can never stop the wheel. With every rotation he wants another, doomed to pursue a destination that cannot be reached for it does not exist. That's good, eh? Like, isn't that true? And like, man, this is what happens when the gospel fully gets a hold of your life as you're free from that. How awesome is that? You're free. And now that doesn't mean your work's not important. We're going to be looking in the Missional Life course about how beautiful our vocation and work is. But it has its proper place. It's not coming from a place of striving. It's coming from a place of rest. It's not coming from a place of this is my identity. It's coming from a place where our identity is in God and therefore we can, in wherever God has put us, serve humbly in love. Like it's a whole different way of living. It's incredibly beautiful and I have experienced it myself because pastors are not immune to this. Pastors are no way immune to this. Every job has this pitfall. And in the pastor world, it's like, you know, how many conferences are you invited to? How many people go to your church? How many services do you run? How many albums have you made? How many books have you written? And it's like none, small, average, I don't know. <laughs> right? And I literally, I moved from a big church where we had the albums and we had thousands of people coming every Sunday and we had all this stuff going on. And it's like, and then when I move here, I'm like, God, you've got to heal me of that. I don't want to be pushing and striving and being restless and, and cooking myself to try and fulfill some goal that I'll never, ever reach. There's always going to be like just out of, every one of us have to wrestle with this. And I don't know what it looks like in your world, but we've got to wrestle with this because then we're back in slavery again and God has come to set us free. 
Thanks, mate. I appreciate that. And a little bit of encouragement. I love, uh, a number of weeks ago, um, sorry, I've totally deviated from my notes. I'm trying to totally regroup here. Where the heck am I? <laughs> <laughs> Um, you, know, you don't have to talk amongst yourselves. I found, I found where I'm meant to be. Um, uh, I remember just a couple of weeks ago quoting from a book, Gentle and, uh, and Lowly, uh, Dane C. Ortland, a phenomenal book that I encourage everyone to read. But there's this one line he says where uh, he says, I don't, I don't want to live for the heart of God. I want to live from the heart of God. And this is that whole thing of religious law that we can get sucked into. We're trying to live for the heart of God when actually the grace of God and the gospel of God sets us free from that where we can learn to live from the heart of God. The most liberating, beautiful place that we can live. And when we choose to do this journey, we can therefore live lives that are far more generous and far more centred around other people flourishing, not just us always flourishing. Other people being blessed, other people flourishing. Verse 12, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. So Paul's talking about how he wound up in Galatia. He kind of changes gear and tone here a little bit. It's quite interesting. But he talks about the fact that it was really the providence of God. Like God kind of orchestrated something where Paul got quite sick. And that's why he wound up having to stop in in Galatia um, because of this illness. And it must have been a pretty feral illness. Because listen, and even though my illness was a trial for me, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Literally, I spent a bit of time in the, in the commentaries this week on this thing, and, and like the scholars are like, what was happening for Paul, where it's like if you looked at him, you'd be like, Ugh, like contempt or scorn, like some foosty eye infection, or I don't know what was going on there, but like, um, and he's like, man, I was so sick and maybe looked a bit repulsive, um, but you did not treat me like that. Um, in the message version, it says this, and don't you remember that even though taking in a sick guest was most troublesome for you, you chose to treat me as well as you would have treated an angel of God, as well as, uh, as, well as you would have treated Jesus himself if he had visited you. What was happening to the, to the satisfaction, what has happened to the satisfaction that you felt at that time? Uh, he go, Eugene Peterson goes on in his outstanding commentary on this passage to say this, freedom does not come by getting control of things or people, but by freely assenting to the reality of being. Whether that being is a stranger's illness or a crushing disappointment or an incomprehensible failure or a futile desolation, we discover the meaning of the free life in acts of compassion and loving service, not in running after people who make big promises to us. So Paul's like, man, like I was really sick and you heard the gospel and you treated me with incredible compassion and love and there was a sense of, in the Greek there, he's tapping into this deep sense of satisfaction. Isn't it true? You know, um, I was t- me and Matt were having a bit of a honest chat the other day and it's like, you know, sometimes because Matt's paid to be here now because he's our worship uh, director uh, and I'm paid here to be a pastor, but there are some mornings like, you know, where you wake up on a Sunday and you're like, I'd really like to stay in bed this morning, right? And it's maybe because the bed's especially warm and it's raining outside, or maybe you're feeling a bit tired because you watched the rugby night for whatever it may be, right? Uh, and then you turn up and, and like you're a little grumpy. Now, some of you guys, and there's some people probably not here because they had the option of not coming this morning because they felt like that. We don't get that option. We have to be here. But every single Sunday, and this was Matt's testimony, sorry for throwing you under the bus, Matt. <laughs> but Matt's testimony was, at the end of every Sunday, I feel so good. It feels so good to serve. It feels so good to bless the folk and to do all this stuff there. 
And it's just so that's so true. Every now I'm kind of used to this because I have to do it every week, but it's like I come here and actually nine times out of ten, like last night, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see everyone again. I'm looking forward to it. I wake up this morning, like, oh, it's gonna be good. We've got the tribe gathering, it's gonna be a bit silly. We have some fun, open the woods, we're gonna be, oh, what's you gonna do, God? I can't wait. All of that, and it's just such a joy. But honestly, we, we the uh, Steve Graham talked about this at camp. Free people can humbly serve and love. In fact, one of the ways that the, the marks, the evidence that you're free is that you can humbly serve and it doesn't matter who. Like there's a freedom that's going on there. And Paul's like, man, you treated me like that when I first turned up. What's happened? You've got this kind of weird religious thing happening again. And then verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Really interesting line. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Like Paul's hitting them up and he's like, are we now not friends anymore because I hit you up with the truth? You know, uh, deeply wounded and broken people can sometimes make you feel like you're an enemy because you've told them the truth. And this is tough. And like we need real wisdom in bringing truth to people, real wisdom. But sometimes even with all the wisdom we bring, people react by making you the enemy. And you know, um, one of the most loving things you can do to someone is gently challenge them if they're your friend. One of the most loving things you can do is gently challenge them if there's some stuff going on. And uh, you know, the Bible says that Jesus was filled with grace and truth. And so often uh, people are polarized. They're either really filled with truth and there's not much grace, or they're so filled with grace they never tell the truth. You know, and I've seen this, especially amongst young people. It's like, you know, someone will announce something on Facebook. I'm dating, you know, clearly a dropkick. And everyone's like, oh, isn't that great? I'm so happy. You know, and it's like, that's just, no, this is horrible. This is not going to end well. It's going to end in tears. And I was don't do it on Facebook, please. I'm certainly not encouraging that in the slightest. But, you know, sometimes I could go to friends and say, mate, you know, have you thought around like what this could mean? That's love. That's, that's agape, costly love. And how they react, now again, we need lots of wisdom around that, but you're not in control of their side of the table. You're in control of your side of the table. And so, so even when we do it gently and we do, it, we do our very best, some people can be like, man, screw you. Can't believe you'd say that to me. And, um, and you feel like, oh man, I feel like I'm an enemy. And Paul's like wrestling with this. He's like, you know, man, am I an enemy now because I'm like actually just telling you the truth? Uh, and then he goes on and says, These people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. Remember, a whole bunch of people have turned up to Galatian, the Galatian church and said, Paul said this, but I've got to tell you, sorry, guys, not only is the messenger not, you know, doesn't have the authority, which Paul has addressed in chapter one, but also his message isn't true. It's not just by grace you've got to bail the Torah. And so Paul says, These people were zealous to win you over, but for no good. Um, sometimes, again, there's some wisdom that Paul's trying to say. Sometimes people can preach very passionately, but it's not true, right? Passion doesn't equal truth. Now, Paul's saying there's nothing wrong with passion. It's fine to be zealous, verse 18, provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I am with you, right? There's nothing wrong with passion. I preach passionately. I'm like, if passion's an issue, then I'm in real trouble. Nothing wrong with passion. It's like, but you've, all of us need to have the discernment. Is this line up with the gospel? Does this line up with the heart of God? Does this line up with the truth, right? We all, in fact, more than ever, we need discernment because we have access to all sorts of crazy content at the drop of a hat. And sometimes it's like, is that, well, I feel confused or whatever. So we've got to have wisdom around all of that stuff. 
Find my dear children, verse 19, for, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. My dear children, again, Paul the pastor comes through. He's carrying uh, this church in his heart. Uh, I've witnessed three childbirths. Um, now, Paul, who is a male, is saying, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth. Woman, you are right to critique Paul on using that metaphor. He has no right to use it. He has no idea what you're going through. Uh, how dare he? But he's trying to give, a, again, all these metaphors around like what he's carrying. Now, and I understand this in part, and many of you understand what Paul's writing here, because it's normal as a follower of Jesus at a certain point of maturity when you've walked with him for a while, that there are people that you are discipling and loving, that you are trying to help walk into the beauty of the gospel, to walk in the way of Jesus. And you carry those people in your heart. And every pastor worth his hope knows exactly what Paul is talking about here. Like, honestly, guys, it's, it's, it is. It's like in my heart, this thing of like, oh, I hope they're doing okay. And when I hear someone's a bit wobbly, it hurts me physically. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. But it's the opposite as well. Like this, again, the metaphor is quite helpful because when a child's born, it's nothing but hallelujah and joy and all the pain was worth it. And I absolutely, honestly, one of the best parts of this job is I, you know, particularly in the journey we're taking as a church, is I hear like someone's just started trying to have a devotional life again. And I'm like, hallelujah, this is why I do this job. That's such epic news. Or this person's decided to hop into a home church and they're really getting a lot out of it. Yes, this is amazing. This is why I do this whole thing. And, and I'm watching people grow before my eyes. And this is why every Thursday morning when I get together for it with our upper click boys and every boy's invited to this Thursday morning, 7 a.m. at Milk and Honey and in Hastings. Where's that? It remains, uh, so you Hastings or Napier options, and the women meet on uh, Wednesday morning at Napier in the Milk and Honey thing. Sorry, that wasn't meant to be a plug, but whatever, I don't want anyone to miss out. Every Thursday morning, ugh, every Thursday morning when I leave that group, I feel like a million dollars because we've gone around the circle and there's a bunch of guys who are saying, yes, I want to be, I want to become like Jesus. And Paul's saying here, I'm in the pains of childbirth, what, for what? Until Christ is formed in you until Christ is formed in you. It's not just about believing in Jesus, it's about following Jesus. It's not about waiting to go to heaven when we die, it's about heaven coming to earth in the present. It's about being formed so that we learn to be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. That's what a disciple does. And so when that stuff is happening, Sam's a happy pastor. Sam's a happy pastor. And literally we orientate everything in our church to try and help people in that discipleship journey. Like Sundays is such a small part of our discipleship process. Most of it's happening in midweeks and groups and home churches and upper click groups and all these beautiful things that are going on in the life of our community. And, and oh, it's the best feeling ever. It's like childbirth and it's like, hallelujah, they're born. All that pain's worth it. But again, not speaking from experience. <clears throat> Let's move on to the last illustration. And let's, we're going to work through a big chunk of text here. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham, Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. Now, we're just going to pause here, but we're going to keep going through the whole thing. But it's very important that we note that Paul is reading the Old Testament figuratively here. Paul's, there's that in there to help us learn how to read the Old Testament. There are times we see things and we go, oh, that's figurative. 
That's to help, that's, that's to help us understand a concept, okay? Uh, so this is what Paul's saying. The, so you've, I'll unpack this in a second. Let's work our way through it because it's a little bit dense here. But hold on and please try and pay attention. <laughs> the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears the children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Who's confused? Like, and again, this is why we've got to do chapter by chapter, because seriously, that all made sense for the people in Galatia, okay? <laughs> Let's keep going. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, a child of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. What does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Oh, we made it. I was really bracing myself for that big chunk. So Paul here talks about the story again in the Old Testament. Uh, and he keeps going back to the fact that God has done the work before anything happened. And, uh, and the two covenants, so this is from the um, commentary by Richard B. Hayes. It says, The two covenants in Galatians 4.24 are not the old covenant at Sinai and the new covenant in Christ. Rather, the contrast is drawn between the old covenant at Sinai and the older covenant with Abraham, which turns out in Paul's rereading to find its true meaning in Christ. Listen. In Paul's scheme, the freedom and inheritance rights of the Gentile Christian communities are not novelties, but older truths that were always implicit in Isaac and the promise of Abraham. So Paul's contrasting here. If you look on the next slide, uh, this is just literally a photo from Scott McKnight's uh, new uh, NIV uh, uh, application commentary of this. He's comparing these two kids that were born under Abraham because Abraham got promised that he would uh, have children, but then in true fashion, he's like, I need to somehow help God out and make this happen, right? He gets wobbly. And how does he do that? He sleeps with one of his slave women. Like, how full on is the Bible? Like, it's so intense. Ooh, okay. Uh, and Sarah's all kind of like trying to like go along with this whole thing. She's, she kind of gives her blessing to the whole thing. Absolute mission. And so Paul's like, you've got to contrast these two things. The law is like the Hagar covenant. Uh, and it's like there's just on the left-hand side, there's so much there that's just really full on. But, uh, but Isaac has this promise under Christ. Uh, and there's so much freedom there. Uh, listen to this in Isaiah 51. It's amazing because Paul's saying we are children of Isaac. We are children of Isaac. In Isaiah 51, and Paul's thinking about this as he writes this particular uh, part of Galatians. It says this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. Now, there's something beautiful going on here. Beth Moore in her commentary says this. Take note of the portion that says, Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father. You may feel as I have, hewn from a different rock than those with a godly heritage who, so, who seem so often to get things right. The number of conversations I've had in the last two weeks where people in this church have said, I am more messy than everyone else in the church. Everyone else in this church seems to have it all together. I'm not like that. I'm a giant mess. And I'm like, and I'm reassuring them. I'm like, 
Can I just say, as the pastor of the said congregation that you're talking about, who has conversations every week with the Muppets in it, that you are bog standard when it comes to how messy your life is compared to everyone else. A whole lot of us look all like we got it all together. And the rest of it, we're all a giant mess, okay? So when you often we look and say, no, we're all part of this great heritage from Abraham. As it turns out, Beth goes on, we, are, we of faith are all dug from the same quarry, chips off the same old block. We were all pre-planned as distinct parts of the same messy, miraculous line. We're a mixed bag and always were. Ours are humble beginnings in Sarah and Abraham. They too had decidedly malfunctioned, and yet they keep believing God. Same with Isaac, same with Jacob, same with Moses, same with David, same with Peter, same with Paul. We are not some the blemished and some the blessed. We're all blemished and we're all blessed. Hallelujah. I love it. We are people of faith, children of the free woman, heirs of the promise, covenant sons and daughters saved by the Son of God. I love it. This is why Paul's trying to get this, like get it into our psyches. You are part of this great, messy, beautiful line of the goodness of God, of the promise of God, and we're all a giant mess in the midst of it all. And, uh, and the, the danger is that we can try and control things like happened with Ishmael. Eugene Peterson says this, the lesson of that old piece of history is clear enough. The moment we begin manipulating lives in order to get control of circumstances, we become enslaved in our own plans, tangled up in our own red tape, and have to live with grievous, unintended consequences. Ishmael's descendants complicated the life of faith enormously for centuries. The life of freedom is a life of receiving, of believing, of accepting, of hoping, because God freely keeps His promises because God keeps freely keeps His promises, we are free to trust. We are free to trust. So I land with this. Ultimately, there are two options. We can live in the beautiful freedom of Christ. And this requires us to trust Him deeply. Over and over and over again, we say, I trust you, God. And this leads us to greater freedom. Or we can live in a form of slavery to whatever other pursuit, person, or the million other one things that can take our focus and the affections of our minds and hearts. And it will become our focus and our identity and we'll get consumed with it. Like those are the two options. We can live in freedom or we can live in slavery. And, uh, and obviously the reason I'm a pastor is because uh, I have experienced the freedom that's found in Jesus. Being a pastor isn't the easiest gig in the world, but it is worth it as we continue to discover the incredible freedom that's found in Christ. Freedom from bosses' expectations and parents' expectations and cultures' expectations and our own internal monologue that says we're not good enough and all that stuff. We can be free when we, uh, by, by the Spirit of God, get that revelation that we are sons and daughters. But where does it begin? It begins with trust. And I land land with this picture. This for me is the gospel summed up in two pictures. <laughs> Uh, on the left there is Eli jumping off uh, a flying fox that we had. That's my son Eli jumping off this flying fox that we had down the road from our house when we lived in Christchurch. And uh, I just love this picture so much because it's a picture of trust in his father, of big trust in his father. We'll be visiting Andrew German if we, uh, if we get this wrong, but it's like, uh, but we have this, tr and, um, and uh, that moment where Eli's up there, and, uh, the very first time, because he's quite a courageous kid, I'm very proud of his courage, and he's up there, and it's a long way down for a little boy. He's like, do you think I can do it, Dad? Do you think I can do it? I'm, I've totally got you, man. Jump, jump, you can do it. And Jen's one of these great mums. It's like, yeah, totally, you can do it. She's taking it. And, uh, and, uh, and then there's that moment. I love the picture as well, because literally he's got past the point of no 
Rotunda's feet have just left the wood and he's fully committed. And that's what, that's what we're invited to with Jesus. In our relationship with God, it's like, I, I completely trust you. I trust you. I completely trust you that you are enough, that you are enough, that in you I can be satisfied, that no career, no amount of power, no amount of money, no amount of influences on social media, whatever it may, none of that will ever satisfy the way that you do. And in that satisfaction, I can live a life that flourishes and is generous and blesses people, right? That's what the first step is it requires us to deeply trust in Him. And then when do we, where do we wind up when we jump? In the arms of a heavenly Father who loves us. Us adopted in like Billy. We are all we are all Billy. We're all Billy in some way, shape, or form. And uh, and when we when we uh, jump into the arms of God, we come home. We come home. 